Welcome to episode 54 of the Global Lithium Podcast, entitled The Lithium Manhattan Project. Our guest today is Vivas Kumar, who is currently with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence and attending the Stanford Business School. So Vivas is a busy guy, and we're glad he took time to speak with us. Prior to his time at Benchmark, Vivas was at Tesla. He's developed quite a following in the green energy and lithium world over the past few years. Vivas is a very articulate spokesperson for lithium and green energy applications. I think you're going to enjoy our wide-ranging conversation and the rapid fire. So without further ado, please prepare to hear the Lithium Manhattan Project. To switch lanes, uh, just no a pun intended. Bit. Oh, definitely pun intended. This is the this is the punniest hour. The best. Hey, Joe. Hey, Emily. The first. Fifteen that the lithium market was showing signs of of movement. Um, a lot of people were talking about EVs and the potential of EVs. This was in early 2015. As many members of the lithium community know, I did a crowdfund for a short film that I wrote and directed. And even a little bit about our culture too. Like I feel that's an important element to be sharing with, with people outside the company. And, and yes, that is a deliberate strategy. Um, You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Today's episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is brought to you by Zalandes, a brine fuels services company active in the lithium space. Zalandes aims to improve on ineffective geoscience technologies and techniques used in brine operations by providing more data, faster, and bringing actionable insights to their clients in hours rather than days. You can find them at www.zelandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z. Welcome to another edition of the Global Lithium Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Joe Lowry, and... I am the other co-host, Emily Hirsch, and we are here in Los Angeles, California, which is sunny during the daytime, but it's nighttime now. Um, we are being joined by um, another uh, benchmark employee who has kindly flown down from school. Vivas, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I had to ask for permission from my teacher to come here, but got a she pass? was kind enough. Yeah. So where are you at school right now, Vivas? I am at Stanford University Business School. At the tree. At the tree. That's what it's called. The team. It's kind of hard to dress up for football games, yeah, I got to say. Yeah, it is. a tree. You could just use like whatever the pageants that kids are using for their school plays. Buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing in the street, gonna be a big man someday, you got mud on your face. Okay, so you're splitting your time between Benchmark and between Stanford. So that's probably a little bit of a tricky balance. And we 
really appreciate that you took the time to talk to us. You've developed a pretty high profile in a very short time in in this space. And we noticed that you've recently been spending some time in our nation's capital. So would you like to kind of tell us what you were doing there and what your conclusions are and take it anywhere you want to? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I, I came to the U.S. 19 years ago and I became a U.S. citizen five years ago. So for me, I consider it part of patriotic duty when our lawmakers and our nation's leaders call on us to show up and help educate them to pass policy, I will be there. And lithium is becoming a hot topic, not only because of electric vehicles and electrification, but also from a national security standpoint. It's no secret that there's this raging trade war going on. And we've talked a lot about lithium supply, battery material supply coming out of China and steps that the U.S. should take. What inspires me is the fact that two years ago, Lithium, the only way in which lithium was discussed at the national level was this critical minerals list. And the critical minerals list is is great. It's nice. It's a list. It's a list. Exactly. It's a list. But what, what substantive policy is going to come out of it? And to be frank, is there going to be actually money put behind these materials, whether it be through tax breaks, whether it be through accelerated depreciation, whether it be through directive DOE, DOD grants? And- the thing about Washington is, and I know, Joe, you've also spent some time up there. These conversations take a lot of time. It takes a lot of education. But when the government decides in a direction, they can be the biggest enabler of industry in the U.S. And we've seen this time and time and again. Living in Houston for almost 15 years, I saw the effect that government policy very directively had on the shale revolution that same level of thinking can be applied to battery materials more generally here in the USA. I was in Washington yesterday, literally, um, on, a, on a panel, and I made a joke that it's all fine and well to talk about the need to prioritize policy, but you know there is a cognitive dissonance or a disconnect where the billion-dollar companies in the United States have put vodka soda in a can have, you know, a teen sexting app and uh, co-working, you know, those companies are somehow worth billions, even though they don't earn, they don't own an asset. Whereas mining is viewed as in a way too risky. Well, um, one of the points of contention that came up in our discussion in, in the White House was this whole idea of the anti-mining culture in the US. The, the fact that mining has always been kind of a dirty word, especially for the last sort of three generations. And now if we look at the vilification of coal miners, the My average- My grandfather actually was an immigrant and he was a coal miner at night in Pennsylvania. Amazing. It's his job. Amazing. But now something like the subject of coal miners is so polarizing here in the US. And the average person who's not in our industry like we are every single day just abstracts that out to all of mining. So people either love mining or hate mining, and especially with growing. And there's a lot more people that hate it. Than <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> and especially with the growing awareness of of climate change, of the fact that our environment is sometimes threatened by mining practices, there are more and more people joining the hating camp than the loving camp on a daily basis. But you have to have mining to get the cans for the vodka soda. 
Well, no, I mean, we, we talked about this on an earlier podcast and it's, you know, Emily's told the story many times and Tom Benson talked about it. Um, you know, that you, you will have, and, and I get attacked on Twitter every once in a while. I'm just, I'm just supporting the exploitation of the earth. And, you know, the person's tweeting to me on their iPhone, which requires all sorts of things that come from the ground. And people, I, you know, it's like people think that the food in the supermarket comes from somewhere, but they don't want to know. And it's like your your rare earths and all your raw materials that go into a cell phone or what, you know. So one of, the earliest, one of the earliest lessons I learned in engineering school was this idea of abstraction, was when you solve one problem, you just assume it to be a constant variable and you try to solve another bigger problem on top of that. So that's how you get beyond silicon to computer chips to full-blown computers. People are just looking at the materials in an iPhone, the materials in bridges as another level of abstraction. It's always been there. It's always going to be there until it becomes a problem. And let's talk about this for a second because... I live in Northern California where everybody's talking about one subject, PG&E. <laughs> Fire. Everybody assumed stable electricity supply in Northern California would be a given. That was a lower level of, of abstraction. Finally, boom, fires hit, powers out, everybody's losing their minds. So there was a phrase that, so the senator in the United States who's kind of leading the charge politically on... The, the energy, the mineral foundations of, of energy in general is Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. And she said that, you know, in the United States, people believe in the immaculate conception theory of energy. Um, and, and kind of to go back to talking about, you know, Vivas is in, you know, working to inform policymakers. Joe, you were sharing some of the areas where money was available in a budget, but then it wasn't able to be deployed because of interest. Can you kind of tell us that story? And then maybe we can talk about how policymakers today could learn from the lessons of the past. Well, I can tell you the story. <laughs> maybe <Viva's laughs> I, I don't know about the learning from the lessons of the past, but, you know, back in the 90s when we had a technology at, at FMC Lithium to put lithium either in or on concrete to extend the life. And it, it, if you had used reactive aggregate to make the, the, the concrete, then you were going to ultimately have a problem. And for a, for a relatively seemingly high upfront cost, your cycle life was the, the MPV of that was off the charts and we went to Washington multiple times. And Claudio, who you met today, he was—he led that charge. He's on a bunch of boards. And um, so I can remember one year, we, I think we got $5 million in a budget, earmarked. But then you can get it earmarked, but spending it's a trick. And getting it actually allocated to real projects was always a problem. And so that's – I. What were those problems? I, you have to get it, you get it allocated, and then you have to get it, the project accepted, and then there's a whole paperwork daisy chain that has to happen. And, you know, this is 20 years ago. I can't give you every nuance of barriers. But then if another entity with a stronger lobby than you could ever hope to have, FMC had a pretty strong lobby because at that time we made the Bradley Tank, we made ordinance for the Navy, but portland cement association or whoever they got a lot of guys too and they would they would try to block your projects and it's it all comes down to 
all the money that's spent on lobbying and uh and if 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 you're saying well you have to go to the different governments and then they have to buy into politicians get elected on short cycles if you're talking about a bridge that lasts for 30 years a guy who gets elected every four years doesn't want to spend the money on his watch to extend the life of the bridge because it doesn't help him get reelected. Vivas, do you think that policymakers are aware, or who do you see as, even if, let's say, we could snap our fingers and the money was allocated, do you see that same kind of entrenched interest that could arise and, and block the spending or have a reason not to support this? At the point at which the money is appropriated, what you'll have at the local and state level is politicians will recognize that this is a job creation opportunity. So going back to the short political cycles that are here in the U.S., this is something that they can ride into election cycles. So kind of moving to another country that you have ties to, um, India. India and lithium has been in headlines. Joe has been getting a lot of, I think, calls and interest talking about uh, lithium in India, Indian lithium. Argentina's mining minister visited India, had some Indian state uh, representatives visit Argentina. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in India, um, both in the electrification of mobility challenges and then from the interest in the raw materials? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is something for, for similar reasons where I've been a U.S. citizen for five years, but I was an Indian citizen for many, many years before that. And I'm still an overseas citizen of India. My entire family lives over there. So if I'm called to help, I'll be there to help. And that's exactly what happened this summer. Spent a couple of weeks in India, meeting industry, meeting government. And here's just a summary of what's going on in India. Fifteen of the top 20 most polluted cities in the world, according to the World Health Organization, are in India. 15 are in one country. That's atrocious. Everybody in India recognizes this. And there has to be a huge upheaval of the grid and of the transportation systems, of chemicals, of the chemical sector, of the manufacturing sector, in order to address this problem. Specifically for electric vehicles, What's missed oftentimes by people who are looking from the outside in in the West is cars will not have an impact in India. The game is about electrifying two-wheelers and three-wheelers and electric buses. That's the primary mode of transportation for most people in India. Even my family, who I would consider decently upper middle class, prefers to own a three-wheeler, excuse me, prefers to own a two-wheeler or use a three-wheeler to get around than buying a car. It's just too much of a hassle to maintain, the streets are too congested. And so when we're thinking about why haven't we seen, for example, my former employer Tesla announced entering the Indian market, even though there's so many people there, why haven't we seen VW GM announce entering India? Because they recognize that cars are not the game in India. What we've seen instead is companies like Ather Energy, which is in Bangalore, which has made a sort of an indigenous domestically produced two-wheeler product for consumers in India, fully electrified. Is that an LFP battery? 
That is an LFP battery coming out of China. What kind of questions do people ask you about India? Well, they really talk, a lot of people talk about they they want to access, they know they don't have a real lithium resource in India. And if you're going to build electrification, they got to have access to lithium chemicals. And then they'll talk to me about, can I help them with context to eventually make cathode or even batteries? Because this is, I mean, these guys are going out on LinkedIn or whatever and just searching for anybody who's in the space. And, you know, I, I mean, they don't just send me email. I mean, I get calls. I, you know, it's it's been it's been pretty interesting because, I mean, I was, you know, telling you before we started recording this that, you know, every day now I'm getting, you know, maybe four people from India. And that used to be the case. You know, well, still, I still get a lot of Chinese interest because LinkedIn is accessible in China. But it's it's those two countries that are constantly trying to learn more and what's the path to you know and and making money i mean these are these are business people they they want to they want to make a profit on uh, the next trend so a couple of things when i when i first got into the lithium industry when i searched on google for lithium expert Joe Lowry is the first person who popped up. So my first exposure to lithium was reading the drama in the Atacama series on <laughs> LinkedIn from Joe. <laughs> Second thing, you know, we talk about India and China. Obviously, these are the two most populated countries in the world, but there are also countries that are dealing with very similar challenges with pollution, with pollution affecting life expectancy, with people, you know, dying because of pollution driven illnesses. And Actually, so, I think that the Trump administration changed that you're not allowed to say that people die of pollution anymore if you under government stuff. Just interesting. Yeah, I did not know that. Now you do. But you know, when you talk about how you get a lot of pings from India and China, the development challenge of lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty is so massive in these countries. I'm not surprised it translates into those two being two countries. That give you a lot of pings, Joe. Sing it. We will, we will rock you. We will, we will rock you. So one of the topics that uh, is echoed around the U.S. policy kind of uh, echo chamber, hard to be redundant, is this idea that China is pursuing a policy of debt diplomacy, where Chinese companies, and this is, you know, translated into Chinese companies going out into the world and owning real assets, which includes mines. And a lot of the Chinese investment into the lithium space comes from private Chinese companies. Um, but many of them do have access to terms from the Chinese central bank that are sort of longer and maybe lower interest than you would get, you know, than a, a bank in the United States or banks somewhere else would get. That's kind of the mechanism by which, or the financial mechanism by which China's interest in lithium has kind of been translated into the lithium space. What's the financial mechanism that would put Indian money into lithium? Is there lithi Indian money to go into lithium? And, and can you just kind of talk around that area a little bit? If we think about where in the supply chain India is now, India's got a robust market for two-wheeler, three-wheeler bus services, but not a single battery mega factory in the country. So, of course, Benchmark has this mega factory tracker, and China has the majority 
of the battery manufacturers and India doesn't have a single one. So we don't even need to talk about battery. Uh, we don't even need to talk about battery materials, about lithium, nickel, cobalt, when there's no cathode, when there's no battery yet. So to directly answer your question, it will be driven more by private industry, companies, the conglomerates like Reliance, like Tata, like the Birla Group. These are the conglomerates that drive industrial development in India and have done so in the 70 plus years that India has been an independent nation. And Do any of those companies, have they, any of them set up like a small group to, to look at this or is that? So all of them have. All of them have and for various reasons. So, you know, the ones that we publicly know about. With Reliance, it's driven by the fact that they are the major chemicals force in the country. With Tata, it's the fact that they have ownership stakes in automotive businesses, including Jaguar Land Rover. And they play in various parts of the supply chain. They recognize that this move towards electrification is going to require battery materials, of which there are none in India. But Graphite. Yeah, there's graphite. There's obviously terabyte graphite. But what I'll say is I have hope that two years ago, this was not part of the conversation. Now it's part of the conversation. Obviously, you've got Indian politicians. So the president of India was in Bolivia with Evo Morales about a year and a half ago. <laughs> How'd that go? I know. How did that go? But anyway, signing an MOU for, for yeah, yeah, Bolivia. Yeah, we did it with every, almost every, yeah, everybody like, that would make a trip. But, but I'll tell you what, like the MOU with Bolivia is completely useless. And right. that's, yeah. that's feedback that I've delivered. Yeah. What about like what what meaning does it give to anyone that the Argentine mining minister who we know who's a, a friend mm-hmm. of the podcast what what does it do who does it help for her to go and so, like say we like a lithium understanding with the Indian government like is that as like what does it well who cares I guess I'll tell you why it matters because. Just like how there's sort of a business roundtable here in India, uh, in here in the United States, just like how President Trump has his councils that are made up of CEOs of many private corporations, mm-hmm. Narendra Modi in India does have frequent touch points with industry in India. If this is part of the conversation at the highest level of government, it will translate into being part of the conversation at the highest level of industry in India who are best equipped and best placed in order to actually drive putting money in producing units of lithium chemicals or battery materials chemicals. Let, let me ask you another question. So if you look at Germany mm-hmm. and they want pack, <laughs> they want EVs, but they don't want cathode. So, I mean, that kind of model is going to be, okay, we'll do the dirty stuff somewhere else and then we'll, we'll do the clean stuff here. But that there's an investment model that can support that. Would 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 a big entity, a Reliance, Tata, whoever, just make investments as an Indian company offshore with the goal to bring the stuff back to India for the Indian market and have it be like a an Indian expat <laughs> battery business? I think if we look at Germany, for example, if we look at the entire European Union. It is around one-sixth the population of India. The addressable market in India itself is big enough. You combine that with the fact that Narendra Modi, who is in his second term as prime minister right now, has for the last five and a half years been pushing his whole make in India, manufacture in India message very hard. And he has made it, based on industry feedback, 
generally easier to make investments in manufacturing and industrialization in India. So, so we, Indian, Indian companies would make the raw material investments outside where, where they had to just because you don't have – if you don't have the exactly. asset, bring everything back, set up a campus. You have like the Dr. Reddy's of batteries or, you know, exactly. whatever you – okay. The only thing that can't move in the supply chain is the mine itself, right? Yeah. Everything else can be made anywhere else. It's just a question of at what cost. And that's what Indian companies have to contend with, right? It's can we make this material here in India for cheaper than anywhere else in the world? And is that Without value- making the pollution problem worse. Without making the pollution problem worse. And is that manner of industrialization something that we want to pursue? This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is brought to you by Zalandes, a Braunfield services company that specializes in real-time technology services and solutions that improve customer performance. Low confidence data, lack of actionable insights, multi-day turnaround, sound familiar? Delays and budget runovers are a constant threat, and without that data, projects don't advance. Zalandes offers an exclusive borehole magnetic resonance service that characterizes the in-situ porosity and permeability of your mineral resource faster and more accurately than conventional methods. Zalandes brings a new way of doing things to the lithium brine space. To learn more, head to zalandes.com. switch lanes uh just no pun intended oh definitely pun intended this is the this is the punniest hour um with your role at benchmark you've you talk a lot about e-mobility obviously what do you see are as like the three biggest barriers to e-mobility three biggest barriers to e-mobility i think number one has to be the fact that there are Many people, rightfully or wrongfully, have typecast EVs as a fun niche product meant for the ultra-rich. It's gotten a little bit better with the introduction of you know, lower-priced models. But at the same time, if you ask the average person in the United States, if you ask the average person anywhere in the world, they're mostly going to think of cars as being an internal combustion engine business. And the patience, especially given attention spans nowadays to understand that EVs before they can reach the type of market penetration that would truly make it a mass market model will take somewhere, you know, five, seven, 10 years. That's not attention span that most people have. Second issue is there are entrenched interests at play in keeping the internal combustion engine economy moving along. Do you think that they will be throwing up roadblocks to policy that's laid out in Washington like we talked about? Absolutely. And it doesn't come from it doesn't come from an evil place. I think one thing that electric vehicle It's jobs. It, it's yeah, one thing that electric vehicle communities do is tend to vilify oil and gas, tend to vilify the internal combustion engine business. The truth is there's massive job loss set to happen. We see that happening right now with the GM strike, with the Lordstown plant. It's all driven by jobs, jobs, job. I mean, I'll go back to the Bill Clinton. It's the economy, stupid. It's all about jobs. We don't call people stupid on this podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, but, um, it, well, the same thing in Germany. I mean, look yeah. at the strength of the unions in Germany mm-hmm. and look at the massive job loss. If, if they go electric, 
it goes all the way to from I mean when when you buy a ICE Lexus they're looking at you as the life cycle of the car with having Lexus service with and and that goes away. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean when I when I bought my Tesla, I never went to a dealership. I have never taken it in for for service or maintenance, no oil changes. There's so many jobs along the whole value chain that are set to be lost due to a transition to electric vehicles and this is a serious concern. I think you're intentionally setting me up. Do you want to you want you want to plug your uh, presidential candidate? Uh, I was about to say, no 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 let me do it let me do it I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there. Um, uh, don't take this from me. <laughs> I have so much we, loss we, we, in my We life. had a pre meeting. What? Um, so <laughs> when we talk about job losses, um, one of the Democratic presidential candidates, Andrew Yang, who I don't actually know if he supported or not. I just said I wouldn't surprise me. It would be on brand. Um, but he talks about one of the biggest challenges coming down the road um, <laughs> is the loss of jobs for for vehicle autonomy. Yeah, truck drivers are gone. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on? Are you actually talk to us about your the Dems? Who, who's your candidate? I didn't realize this was going to be a political podcast. It's no, it's not. not. It's We're not. just and, and she, she actually <laughs> told me you supported Yang or I wouldn't have brought it up. I, I support Yang? Joke. I don't know. Since when? I don't know. Is it because I live in Silicon Valley? <laughs> I mean, I was just like, do you well, Let's actually talk about this point of Andrew Yang and his whole point on autonomous because I think it's a, it's a valid point. Support him or not, I think the whole point around job loss that he makes is valid and the whole freedom dividend and, you know, that's a separate conversation whether I agree with that or not. But let's take, once again, I'll go back to personal experience. I jump in my car. I commute to San Francisco. 90% of the drive is on autopilot. I text. I watch a movie. I do everything short of taking a nap because legally speaking, I still have to touch the steering wheel every couple of minutes. I feel like you could use your time time, better just as a judgment call. But at the same time, there is still that last 10%, which as a human, I need to intervene. And it's kind of comparable to airline pilots, right? Like airline pilots still need to take off this thing, taxi it, monitor it just to make sure that if there's any adverse conditions, they can take over, land the thing. But on a 16-hour Hong Kong to New York flight, 15 hours and 50 minutes, they're not doing anything. So optimizing that last 10% for autonomy is quite a bit harder than I think people realize. There are millions and millions of edge cases, which... What's an edge case? An edge case is... So a, a regular case, like in terms of software terminology, regular cases are like, if you're driving in the highway, you need to drive straight. If you need to turn a lane, you need to turn left and et cetera, right? It's the actions that are done over and over and over again that are repeated and for which you have multiple trials and multiple data points. Something like your crazy neighbor jumps out in front of your car is something that's less. I have a case. Mm -hmm. So my mom and I were driving on the highway the other day and I was like, blah, 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 autonomy. Um, And and we, a plastic grocery bag flew across the the highway and it was sort of, we essentially had to drive straight into it. And because we're human people and we know we could immediately, without making a, without having to think, a plastic bag is, even though it's opaque and big and flying at us, we knew that the right thing to do was 
just drive into it. Whereas an autonomous vehicle maybe doesn't have that context and maybe it's not. Is that an edge case? That's that's an example of an edge case where it's not like every single day on every drive you're going to have a plastic bag fly by. But you have the wherewithal, given the human intelligence that you have, drive through, don't to move. make the determination. The car does not have that yet. I'm not saying it will never get there because in order to get edge cases resolved, you need billions of miles of data. We will get there, but resolving that last 10%, resolving that last 1% is a lot harder than I think people think. What about the machines? No, I'm kidding. Um, so going back to lithium, um, what is the relationship between autonomy and e-mobility or electrification? Autonomy and electrification are tied together at the hip because it's not like, okay, Autonomy and e-mobility are tied together at the hip. Internal combustion engines cannot perform as autonomous vehicles like electric vehicles can. But why? The reason is because of number of moving parts. Eh. Electric vehicles. Also, just if you look at what's commercially available today in terms of the speed and strength of the computers put in electric vehicles versus internal combustion engine vehicles, the speed and strength of computers that are put on board EVs are able to handle the data processing needed to run autonomy. Give us color on the the difference in moving parts. Is it 10%? No, it's it's over 100%. No, no, no. An EV has X percent of the moving parts of a An ICE. EV has less than 40% of the moving parts as an EV. I thought it was even smaller than that. Yeah, but I'm 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 simply, you know, allowing yeah. space for yeah, every type yeah, yeah. of EV and every class of vehicle. But okay, your Tesla okay. has the percentage of moving parts of the last car you owned before it. Well, the last car I owned before it was a 1997 Toyota Camry. So <laughs> okay. Sweet, slick whip. Yeah. <laughs> the Tesla is at like a 10% of yeah, that. Well, okay, okay. So, so 10% isn't out of the realm of possible. You can make that example, but it's not an average. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's super interesting. Buddy, you're a young man. So those are my three kind of big areas. Well, the one thing that, you know, you've joined the benchmark team. I think you have had a good time um, and, and you had a lot of value and they add a lot of value. Um, what, what's what's your plan, right? Like, who does Vivas want to be when you grow up? Well, that's a very pertinent question, especially to ask a business school student. Most people go to business school because they have no idea what they want to do. What do you want to do? Well, I really love the space. I fell into it on accident. When I went to Tesla... I had no idea what lithium was beyond an element in the periodic table and somehow fell into the job that I had, got to travel the world and see the lithium industry in action, see the broader battery materials industry in action. I strongly feel this is a place where lots of young people can make a difference. And this is the industry where I want to be for the coming years. Is that a good enough answer? I don't evaluate his answers. His <laughs> answers are his answers. No, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest problems, I mean, we talk, I talked about it yesterday in the lunch uh, panel and somebody asked me the question, you know, like basically when you look at 
a project and you look at how to make it project successful, I said, assuming you actually have a resource that you can exploit, the team is the most important thing. Be- and, and the lithium industry has a dearth of talent coming into it. And that's why, I mean, it, it, was, a, it was a great opportunity for me because – there wasn't anybody that could talk about lithium because everybody involved was either working for a company and couldn't talk or dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in, you know, now you're, you're seeing people try to move into the space, but you still don't see, there's not a lot of young engineers in, in these companies. And look, I'll, I'll give you an example of this 10 years ago when I was recruiting for a job out of engineering school. I showed up for info sessions from companies in the natural resources sector in general. And then I would show up for Silicon Valley tech companies. The marketing of Silicon Valley tech companies is next level. The, the messaging, the storytelling over photo sharing apps and over the optimization of advertising algorithms is beyond the scale of comprehension. You're and like, but what do you actually do? What do you actually do? Well, I'm inspired by the mining industry in general because I think it takes a lot of boxes for what millennials want in their life. Number one, it's a very international industry and millennials love to travel internationally. So at Tesla, I went to 25 different countries as part of my job. If you tell a millennial, let me give you a job where you get to travel the whole world on somebody else's dime and see it in a way that most people don't get to see it, many millennials will say, hey, sign me up. And the second is, there's a lot of bad publicity, bad marketing around mining's failures. And I can understand why, because a failure in mining affects entire countries, entire communities. But at the same time... A failure at Facebook affected an election. Absolutely. Maybe. Maybe. Big big tech has gone to that point where these questions are being raised, right? But 10 years ago, like I said, when I was was looking at Google and they were coming up and showing, hey, we've got free food, we've got this we've got that and like it sounds like you're trying to make me work longer hours by feeding me lots well but i'll that's... tell you a dirty little secret i'm clearly not a millennial but the reason i went to the lithium business was because it was global there wasn't a lot of competition i was going to get to travel the world same reasons so same you're the, reasons you're the millennial og <laughs> but 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 joe most people who are in Emily and my age category, they're not seeing this to be true. What they're seeing is, well, they're just not seeing it because of abstraction. Because they they look at the iPhone, they look at the apps in the iPhone, but they don't look at what's underneath that complex architecture. They don't look at what are the machines that built this machine. And there's a lot of meaning in communicating the value of those machines. That okay, just so hasn't when, been if done you're yet. reflective for a moment, how big of an outlier are you? I mean, you talk about, you know, your generation's not, how do you, how do you, how do you, this, how do we stem the tide of people <laughs> just ignoring the opportunities in what's considered a dirty, poorly marketed industry? Yeah, so what's the how, first do, how do you get 15 guys like you to say, hey, I want to do this and I want to, because, you know, you you look at, Lithium technology, lithium extraction technology. The only way that's going to change is if you get a bunch of smart people trying to figure it out. Let them work in their pajamas and give them free granola bars? No, I think no. it's 
once again, it's communicating meaning of work, communicating the fact that entire countries, entire communities can be lifted up through mining, that there's so much that mining does for the world to enable every other form of innovation. At the same time, mining technology has not kept pace with consumer technology. That's a huge opportunity right there. Absolutely. But can you can you foresee a conversation like Steve Jobs had with John Scully and says, do you want to change the world or do you want to continue to make sugar water? I mean, that was his pitch when he got Scully to come on. Whether it was a good idea or not, we could, you know, I don't want to <laughs> go down that road. But so how do you make changing the transport world, changing energy storage, how do you market that as appealing? But you know what? That's the same conversation that got me into this industry. My, my VP at Tesla at the time, I didn't join Tesla to do lithium. I joined Tesla to do something else that I would characterize as optimizing on the margins. And he basically said, you're perfect for this role at optimizing margins, but you could also be perfect in this role where you can have a direct impact on something that is key and critical to this car. I was blown away. I was like, this is great. Sign me up. And I think that that message from the entire mining industry to millennials has just not been very resonant. Once again, I'm one data point, but... No, that's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you, that, that, that was really my question is when you look at your generation, are you just an outlier or is, I mean, how are, how are you, if you were put in charge, the government said, to you, okay, Vivas, we want you to come in and help us make mining great again. <laughs> Red hat. <laughs> wow, this has gone really political. <laughs> no, so, I mean, it's a legitimate mm-hmm. question. You could take the Trump pun out of it. And- so let's take, <laughs> let, let's take what millennials would say to that. Number one, mining is a huge pollutant. I think that's a fair point of feedback. Alternative energy needs to be more a part of the mining industry than it has been today. And so... If there are noticeable steps towards making the supply chain more green and saying to millennials, you can be part of a clean supply chain, you can be part of a green supply chain, you can be part of the company that's leading on this, that's a huge message. We've already talked about the international piece. A third piece that also resonates a lot with millennials, I would say, is the fact that millennials love to be part of making exponential changes to something. Google was an exponential change in the world. Apple was an exponential change in the world. Now look at Apple. Like the difference between an iPhone 10 and iPhone iPhone 10X or an iPhone 10S or whatever. Yeah, but like that's optimizing on the margin. We've got World War II level technology in some parts of mining that can be upgraded. It takes fresh oh. thinking to do that. That's a huge white space. Well, your former employer's lithium chemicals came from a plant that was older than I am that was designed to get the trigger for the hydrogen bomb. And it was it was just always fascinating that for me to sell that to Japanese, because it you know, when it started, it was Sumitomo I Mining. And I had to tell, I had to, I used to tell the French bread story because our plant was so archaic and so no, no real, I mean, it was an art. It was much, you know, I, cause I, I would say on the drive over, 
You guys like bread? Your favorite bakers. Actually, Japan has some of the best bread in the world. Absolutely. And I would say, imagine your bakery's 400 years old. And it's really shoddy looking, but it makes the best bread. I said, that's kind of the way you got to think about what you're going to see this morning. Because you and I both know we make the best lithium hydroxide on the planet. You've you've got lot data on hundreds of lots now, and nobody touches us. But what you see is going to scare you. <laughs> well, here, have a baguette. <laughs> but, you, but, you know, on this point of H-bombing, yeah. this brings us full circle in this conversation about U.S. policymakers, when the American government decides to do With something... With the Manhattan Project. I've been it, hashtagging it, that for four years. When the U.S. government decides OG. to do something, it does it all the way. When it was developing the H-bomb, we went all the way. When we needed to put a man on the moon, 400,000 people person. in America... A person on the moon. Thank you. Sorry about that. It's okay. 400,000 Americans put their lives on hold and went to work for NASA and Associated Industries to accomplish that mission. If you go back and listen to the speech, you stated it correctly because that was the mission. I know, I'm just saying. It happened at my alma mater, Rice University. (laughs) Shameless plug. You go. But, But anyway, so the major point on this is when American industry decides and American government decides on a direction and goes all the way, value is created for generations. This is our Manhattan Project moment electrifying the grid, electrifying vehicles. This is our best shot at beating climate change. We can do it. Final question before rapid fire. Yeah. When's the last time we had a Manhattan Project moment? When is the last country? time we had a Manhattan Project moment? I think it was the Manhattan Project. <laughs> no. It, so – I mean, the government – that it was a government initiative and it had ma- – Man on the Moon. I Yeah. Fi- but that's 50 years. Man on the Moon, I think – um don't underestimate the role of government in the telecoms infrastructure and the internet infrastructure that we have today, which happened 30 years ago. So Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley because of 20 years of defense contracts. But that was okay. But that was a kind of an organic thing. It wasn't like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do this this way. I mean, Man on the Moon was like, boom, this is a very specific goal. Yeah. What you're talking about really kind of evolved. It wasn't. It wasn't nearly as public. Yeah. In terms of telecoms. But anyway, okay, so we're going to put you in charge of this, and we'll come back next year and check your progress. No, this is this has been a great- Don't disappoint us. This has been a great discussion. Um, but, I mean, there is another- We had another millennial in this room sitting in that chair not too long ago. T- Tom Benson is believes he what he's doing is contributing to the betterment of the world, and that Thacker Pass can be what- you just can the kind of things you said in, in the U S and low emissions and something you're proud of. And I mean, that's, that's what sucked him in. So you are an outlier, but so is he. So we got two outliers. So Malcolm Gladwell can write his next book following up on you two guys. So, we're we at, are that, at moment. that moment of the. I have one rapid fire question, one word answer. First one that comes to mind. If you got to pick, you're not allowed to do anything else in your life except for make one city in the world a smart city. Which do you pick? Houston, Texas, my cool. hometown. What's your rapid fire question, Joe? 
you can have dinner with any one or two historical figures and they can be living or dead. We'll bring them back. Special, special command performance. Who do you pick? I would pick Mahatma Gandhi and Neil Armstrong. And would you have dinner together with them or would you have to... I mean, is there a synergy between them or it's just two interesting guys? Two, two interesting guys who I want okay. to have dinner with. Okay. All, All right. right. So... Where we are, this is a pretty social media savvy bunch. Uh, Vivas, you are on Twitter at Vivas K, a number. Vivas VK7. Vivas VK7. Um, and you're on LinkedIn. Uh, you are featured, and your writing and work is featured prominently on the Benchmark uh, Minerals website. Am I missing any of your. Do you have a question for us? Oh, yeah. You can rapid fire question us. Or it doesn't have to be rapid fire, any question. Don't, you don't have to. It's just we're, that, so we're starting to offer here, that. Here's, a, a here's, a, here's an industry tactical question, Joe. You've been, in, you've been around the block multiple times, and, and you've seen the bubbles. You've seen the busts. You've seen a lot of excitement around a geography. You've seen the excitement not really pan out sometimes. What do you think about lithium in Africa? Do you, think it's a, do you think it's a bubble that could happen in the future? Do you think that it's something that people could get really excited about in the future? Was there a Corningware in your house when you were a kid? Absolutely. You know where that original batch for Corningware came from? No idea. Rhodesia. Ah. Which, for obvious reasons, when they had a little change down there, because the, there was enough lithium in that sand to be a natural batch. So, you know, honestly, in, in one of the first things I did when, because I wasn't a technical guy, and when I was was allowed to come into the commercial organization, I hired the former head of R&D for Alcoa for Reynolds Metals to help me market to the aluminum industry. I hired the chief geologist from Corning. So, I, you know, and, and to them, they hated to buy chemicals because it was like they had to spend a lot of money on as a dopant to sand. I mean, they were, they were viewing it completely opposite of the way it is now. So, I mean, when I started out, I mean, Africa was a province. I, I think that because it's been so hard to raise money for lithium projects, one of the first things you look at is the political situation and the infrastructure situation. And where the lithium is in Africa doesn't really support being the next few projects because there's enough enough other good ones. You know, and then if, if this whole clay thing, we won't call it clay though because Tom would be angry at the sedimentary, it's sedimentary at the time asset. Now. Um you know, if you get stuff like Thacker Pass and that goes, then you're going to go to where you have safe jurisdictions with predictable governments rather than going to to Africa. And obviously, there's a lot of mining in Africa, and I, I get all that. But because lithium's always been such a small niche business with small scale, you don't get the massive support to go, you know, rogue. I mean, if you have to put in a thousand kilometers of a road. To pull lithium, come or even precursor out, you're not going to do it. Absolutely. So oh, go go for my question. I have a rapid fire question for Emily. I'm on it. How many years before we see a fully autonomous vehicle on streets of Buenos Aires? Jesus, not in my lifetime. <laughs> There's no chance. I mean, okay. no. It, uh, fifty. I, maybe I'll still be alive. Yeah, in 50 you might years. still be alive. It, I mean, it's 
It's old Emily Hurst. She lives around the corner. <laughs> I mean, it's... I, <laughs> she just got hit by an autonomous Buenos Aires vehicle. Buenos <laughs> is, is a town that's frozen in time, and there's good things and there's bad things about it. But I don't think, I don't think anytime soon. Um, to segue off of the question that Vivas asked you, if other millennials have questions for Joe Lauer and they want answers, what should they do, Joe? At Global Lithium. They can follow me on Twitter and... And do you have a specific podcast with questions and answers? I do. And that would be Global Lithium Q&A. And I was surprised today to learn three more countries have been added. So I've only had that podcast except since October 15th. But I got listeners in 53 countries, which is kind of bizarre. Can millennials ask you questions they can. that they aren't directly on, about they, lithium? They just go on Anchor and they hit. there's a button to ask a question. They leave a voice question and it comes to me. That is cool. Well... Hey. I am excited about that. It's, You're also, it's a wonderful time to be alive, Emily. <laughs> so you are also avid on LinkedIn. I um, am. Listeners of the Global Lithium Podcast can find this podcast and more at www.lithiumpodcast.com. I am on Twitter at Lithium Podcast. I am on LinkedIn. You can find me as Emily Hirsch. Um, I think that's all of the ways to find me. My papers float around in English and Spanish. If you ever see someone asking noisy questions at events, it's probably me. You can come say hi to me, IRL. Um, and I One think- of the scariest moments I've had in lithium is I spoke in Spanish at a conference in Argentina and Emily Hirsch got up and accosted me in Spanish with a question. Yeah. I, I'm all I'm about the questions in IRL, Joe. Okay, we're going to let our... Yes, we are overstaying our, buddy, our... Our new buddy Campbell go home because we've, like, abused this guy by making yeah. him stand. Yeah, my, my, my hall pass from Stanford only yeah. lasts four hours, yes. so i got to go back to class yeah. as well. All right. With so, that, we will say good, good night, night and, and good, good luck. luck. This has been the Global Lithium Podcast with co-hosts Joe Lowry and Emily Hirsch. The podcast is edited by Elena Peach and produced by Joe, Emily, and Elena. You can find more episodes of the podcast at lithiumpodcast.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for Joe or Emily or a suggestion for a future episode topic, please send an email to globallithiumpodcast at gmail.com.